millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Read to Lead podcast, episode 41. Hi, I'm Ben Carpenter, author of The Bigs. If there's a bigger, better podcast on personal and professional growth, I've yet to find it. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Just given the extraordinary amount of information overload that we have and the incredible number of channels of media that are pouring into our lives, I think business books need to change. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Thank you very much, Joy, and welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We sit down with a successful and inspiring author, and we're going to talk about their latest book and, depending on their area of expertise, thoughts on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, entrepreneurship, maybe all six, in fact. In this episode, we'll chat with Dan Rome, author of Show and Tell How Everybody Can Make Extraordinary Presentations. And in today's episode, Dan will share how to leverage the three simple rules for show and tell, the only six pictures you need to tell a great story, and tips for fighting against worry and anxiety before your next public talk. I want you to look for a second over at your physical bookshelf or maybe pull up your virtual bookshelf via your Kindle app on your mobile device or whatever app you like to use, and count how many books you've yet to finish. Maybe there are even a a few that you've not even started yet. Well, what if each of those books, still calling your name and reminding you of the guilt you feel every time you just think about it, what if each of those books just took 15 minutes of your time to complete? Just 15 minutes to glean the main ideas and key insights. How many of those unfinished books or books you haven't yet started could you check off your list? And how liberating would that feel? Well, if you're anything like me, it'd feel pretty darn liberating. And that's exactly the opportunity Blinkist provides. It's a web and mobile app that I love. You get actionable inspiration from today's top thinkers during your commute, waiting in line, or anywhere you are. If you suffer from information overload, like Dan hinted at a moment ago, and want an effective way to read more in less time, you need Blinkist. Oh, and by the way, no algorithms here, just thoughtfully composed, human-made works that are heavy on substance and light on fluff. You want to sign up for a free trial of Blinkist? It's very simple. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Read to leadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Don't wait. Check more books off your reading list than you ever thought possible. Read to leadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Dan Rome is the author of the international bestseller, The Back of the Napkin, the most popular visual thinking book of all time. 
Fast Company, Business Week, and The Times of London all named it the number one creativity and innovation book of the year in 2008. Dan is the founder and president of Digital Rome, Inc., Rome, like his last name, R-O-A-M, a management consulting firm that uses visual thinking to solve complex problems for such clients as Google, Boeing, eBay, Microsoft, Walmart, Wells Fargo, the U.S. Navy, and the United States Senate. He and his whiteboard have appeared on CNN, MSNBC, ABC News, Fox News, NPR, and at the White House. His new book is called Show and Tell, How Everybody Can Make Extraordinary Presentations. Well, I'm I'm a huge fan of yours, having uh, read The Back of the Napkin uh, several years ago. So it is a delight for me to have you on the show today, I must say. Well, thank you. My, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Well, there, there seems to be, uh, Dan, a number of books out recently on the topic of public speaking. In fact, here on the Read to Lead podcast just last month, we had three authors on who have written books centered in and around that topic, Bill McGowan, Ryan Avery, Carmine Gallo. And I'm curious to know how you see show and tell. How is it different from other public speaking focused books that have been coming out recently? Well, before I answer that, Jeff, uh, let's just put it this way. Given the number of books that are coming out on presentations and public speaking, it tells us something that I believe for a long time that it is critically important to us in business and in our personal lives to be really good presenters. And we're just starting to kind of figure that out. You know, it's interesting, that list of authors who you've just mentioned, Carmine is a pretty good friend of mine. He mm. lives out here in the Bay Area as well, and Carmine and I have gotten together for lunch a couple of times. And the real answer is this. There are a tremendous number of extraordinary books on presentations out there. I think Carmine's newest book is great. I think anything by Gar Reynolds, who wrote Presentation Zen, is fantastic. Mm. I think anything by Nancy Duarte, who wrote Slideology, and more recently um, Resonate, her books are unbelievably good. And yet, uh, the reason I decided to write another one, it's a very simple reason. And I'm not the person who first wrote this quote. I don't know who did. But if you can't find the book that you want to read, go ahead and write it. (laughs) And in this particular case, as someone who now makes a vast amount of my living doing public speaking, I realized that I want a book that I can read in less than an hour, that I'm going to remember almost everything in it, because everything in it is going to be very simple, very clear, and very applicable. And I could not find that book. I could not find the book on public speaking that I could read that fast, put down, and say, I now know exactly what I want to do. So that's the book I set out to write. And secondly, being a very visual person, uh, some of the books that are out there, uh, the really good ones on presentations, certainly are very visual. They have lots of pictures in them. I still wanted to take a different attack and say, I'm the guy who likes to draw as I talk. I'm going to put those drawings in the book so that not only is the content easy to grasp, but the fact that there are visual, simple hand-drawn visuals supporting every point that I make, just make those ideas absolutely visceral and visual and unforgettable, and that's why I wrote it. Well, there's something about a Dan Rome book that 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 I say is unique to your books, Dan, and and they're just fun to read. Uh, and maybe maybe the drawings are part of that. But uh, I, I and I'm going to sound like a book geek here. Your books are fun to hold. I mean, it's just there's something about. I don't know if it's because uh, you know most books are uh, you know that portrait orientation that this rectangular shape. Yours are typically square. I, I know I'm sounding weird when I say this, but there's just something unique about that. And then just like I said, they're fun to read. Uh, and, and I can't quite put my finger on why. They just are. 
Well, you know, Jeff, I'm actually very, very happy to hear that because that's been the goal all along. And I'll tell you, I, you know, as a business writer, uh, read a lot of business books. And I think there are good business books and there are not such good business books. But my reality is that I don't have time to finish most of the books that I pick up, no matter how good they are. Mm. And I realize that in, it is, why do I think the books are more fun? Well, number one, the square format's unusual, true. Number two, the fact that they're full of quick little drawings makes them very quickly digestible. But number three, I'm going to go out on a, on a bigger sort of social trend here and say, just given the extraordinary amount of information overload that we have mm. and the incredible number of channels of media that are pouring into our lives, I think business books need to change. Uh, because I think the traditional business book that's 280 pages long and broken up into 16 chapters is becoming less likely to be read. Mm. And it's because our attention spans are splintered more than they have been in the past. And let's face it, if you're a really busy business person, I don't think it's realistic for most of us authors to expect that our readers are really going to have the time to read our books with the level of intensity that we put into writing them. So I actually doubled the amount of time I took to write show and tell in order to cut out three quarters of the book. <laughs> so it's the weird irony that in order to write a short book, it takes twice as long. So I gave myself twice the writing time as my previous books, and I spent more time cutting so that by the time it was done, I came up with a book and I'm really so happy to hear that you say it's fun. I'll tell you why it's fun in my idea is because we cut out everything that wasn't fun. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's really the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if I got through all the books I read as, as quickly as I did yours, it certainly would make my job a lot easier, I can tell you that. Uh, you referenced a moment ago that there's nothing really more critical to our success than being able to effectively share our ideas in public. Yet nothing terrifies many of us more than getting up in, in front of other people. Is it, as your book, as the subtitle of your book says, is it really possible for anybody to give an extraordinary presentation? It is absolutely possible for anybody, and let's make it even more optimistic. It is absolutely possible for everybody to give an extraordinary presentation. You know, we are natural-born presenters, and if you just think about the time when we were little babies and we needed something from mom, we were really good at being able to tell her what we wanted, and sometimes we got it and sometimes we didn't, but she sure got the message. Just by virtue of being human, I, I really do profoundly believe that we're really good at having an idea and finding a way to express that idea. Somehow, from anywhere between kindergarten and about 12th grade, a lot of things in our lives, of course, change, we grow up, we become self-aware, a whole bunch of things happen, and somewhere in there for most of us, there builds this fear of being judged by getting in front of other people. And I've got that fear, stage fright, whatever you want to call it, public speaking anxiety, I've had it. Everybody that I know has had it. Anybody who says that they're not afraid to get up on stage is either lying or, you know, someone so charismatic as George Clooney where they really are one in a million or something. <laughs> we all have the ability to do it. What we need to do is understand how simple a really extraordinary presentation is. All it is, there are only three moving parts in any great presentation. There's ourselves, us, who are we, then there's our idea. What do we want to share? And then there's our audience with whom 
are we going to share this idea? Mm-hmm. And, you know, any one of us can handle three moving parts. It's not that complicated. So if we break it down into those three pieces and say, what's the idea I want to share? Who do I want to be when I share it? And what change do I want my audience to experience from my having shared it with them? Any one of us can do something extraordinary. Well, I really appreciate how you've effectively narrowed it all down to what you call the three simple rules for for show and tell. You talk about telling the truth, uh, telling it with story, telling that story with pictures. And I thought it'd be cool to break each one of those down uh, one at a time if we could. Dan, describe the three types of truth, that first one of those three. Yeah, Jeff, and you nailed it. So three simple rules. How to make an extraordinary presentation, tell the truth, tell that truth with a story, and tell that story with a picture. The truth, you know, nothing, as, as people, we have a pretty profound and pretty effective sixth sense about when someone is BSing us. <laughs> and, you know, the fastest way to build trust with our audience as a presenter or as a public speaker is just to tell the truth because people will sense that we are being truthful And more than anything else, what's going on in a presentation is a building of a bond of trust between the person on the stage and the people in the audience. If we as the presenter can build that trust, we can share just about anything with that group in a way that they are going to want to listen to. But if we screw that up, and if we position ourselves in a way that they are not going to trust us, we can't tell that audience anything. So how to establish the trust? Just tell them the truth. Well, now that's tricky, isn't it? Because we all know there are lots of truths. And hey, my truth might be different than your truth. Here's the way I break it down. There are three kinds of truth. And at the bottom of the stack, the most common truth is what we're going to call the truth of the data. These are the facts. These are the numbers. These are the things that were measured and quantified that most of the things that we learned when we were in school, they're facts and they're, and there's a truth to them, you know, two plus two equals four. Okay. That's a nice fact. Then on top of that is another level of truth, which I'm going to call the truth of our mind or the truth of the things that we think. And what that one is, is, you know, based on all these facts that I've heard and all these things I was taught in school, these are the things I think about that. I think the world is round. I think the sky is blue, you know, and those are true and they're pretty profound. But then on top of those are the really, really deep truths. And I'm going to call these the truths of our heart. These are the things that we actually believe. And, you know, if you think about these three truths, facts on the bottom, knowledge in the middle and belief at the top, those three are not always in alignment. I'm sure every one of us has come across a fact that didn't align with what we fundamentally believed. And what are we going to do? Are we going to change the fact? Are we going to change what we believe? Well, more often than not, if the fact doesn't align with what we believe to be true, we're probably going to ignore the fact. And so where I think when we talk about telling the truth in a presentation is we need to look at all three of those levels of truth and say, given who I am and given what I want to share and given who my audience is, I'm going to have to deal with all three of those truths and I'm going to emphasize them and I'm going to be upfront about them so that people know where I'm coming from and trust me as I take them through my truth. So Jeff, does that make any sense? That makes perfect sense. I love it. Now, the second of the three rules, the storytelling aspect uh, of our presentation, I was 
relieved, I guess is the word, to see that it really comes down to four storylines. It's really all we need to worry about. What are those four, and when, Dan, might we elect to use each one? What circumstance? Okay, so you nailed it, Jeff. I think that any good presentation, the reason why a presentation is good is because it does follow a storyline. It's not random. It's not endless. It's not confusing. Any great presentation, just like any good book or any good movie, follows a storyline. Now, the breakthrough for me in working on this book was realizing that, you know, there could be dozens of different kinds of storylines. Imagine if I'm trying to sell you something, I might tell you this kind of a story. Imagine that I'm trying to convince you of something, um, I might tell you a different story. Imagine that I wanted to, I don't know, teach you something, I might tell a different story. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, it's got to be simpler than that. (laughs) So what I did is I just took every conceivable type of presentation I could come up with from a school lecture to a graduation commencement address to a wedding speech to a sales pitch uh, to a TED talk to a Steve Jobs, you know, uh, iPad demonstration, any presentation I could think of. And I threw them all into this big vat. And then I looked at them and I said, what makes these things alike? And I realized that only four storylines are required, any one of four, to tell any presentation we want to make. And the four storylines go as follows. The first one we're going to call the report. And that's the one I'm going to use to deliver you some facts. So remember a moment ago we were talking about the truth of facts and Mm -hmm. data? Mm -hmm. If I'm just going to deliver to you a report, status report, fine. The facts, here they are. And a report, if you were to imagine it visually, looks kind of like a flat line with little bumps along the way, kind of like an EEG in a hospital or something. Mm -hmm. The report moves along pretty much flat, and every once in a while there's a little bit of interesting new data delivered. But it's not, in all fairness, a very exciting sort of presentation. (laughs) I mean, no one ever got a raise for giving a really good report. (laughs) So then the second one ups the ante a little bit. And the second storyline we're going to call an explanation And the visual I'd like you to imagine for this one is a kind of a staircase. An explanation says we start at the bottom of the stairs, but I am going to take you through a series of steps, step by step, you know, item by item as we go. And by the time we're done, if I've done my explanation well, we will be at a new level of understanding. I will have taught you or showed you some new knowledge. Mm. And if you remember our truths about what do we think, the way we change people's uh, thoughts, uh, what do they actually think about things as we take them through a very clear explanation, that sort of staircase. Well, now let's go on to storyline number three. And this one I want you to imagine we're going to call the pitch. And here's the way this one looks. Imagine a little point and, and, and sitting there, and, and that's you and I. And then in front of that point, there's like a big mountain. And you and I need to get over that mountain. That mountain represents our problem or our roadblock or our challenge. And you and I need to get past it. And in order to get past it, I need you to take some kind of action. I need you to buy something new or I need you to hire me or I need you to try my company's product or whatever it is. Because I know how to get past that mountain and I want you to come with me. So the pitch looks like an arc that sort of starts at our dot and goes up over that mountain in front of us and then comes down on the other side. Mm. So the way the pitch works, and this is classic salesmanship, 
I'm going to say, hey, Jeff, you and I are in the same place. You know that? And there's this big problem that we face. Well, you know what? I've been past that problem before, and I know how to get over it. So here, let me show you what it took. Let me give you a couple of options. The option I'd really like you to take is this one. Will you join me? Let's jump over it together. Hey, wasn't that easy? Look, we're on the other side. Awesome. Buy my product. <laughs> so, so that's the classic pitch. Now, those are the three storylines that are going to get us through traditionally pretty much every sort of business communication. I'll deliver your report, status update. I'll explain something or I'll pitch you. But there's a fourth one that's missing in there. And this is the big one. This one we're going to call the drama. And this is the presentation when we need to pull out the big guns. Because remember, we were talking about those three truths earlier. I can use a report or an explanation to change your view of the truths of the facts. And I can use a pitch or a good explanation to change your view of what you think. But if I want to change what you believe, I have to pull something really amazing out. And that's why I pull out the drama. And let's draw this one virtually again. So imagine the drama. And there's a little point. That's you starting out there. And you're kind of moving ahead along a line and everything's fine. And then all of a sudden something really bad happens. And that line starts to bend down now. And you're going down and things are getting worse. They're not getting better. They're actually getting worse because we know... You know, one bad thing leads to another, and all of a sudden you're down there in the pit of despair at the bottom of this valley. But you know what? That's not good enough. We are not going to die today. We are not going to let despair take over. So what happens in the drama is right when things are at their most bleak, we discover an idea. We remember something. Or a mentor comes in and reminds us of something or gives us a new piece of information or a new piece of advice. And that inspires us and it makes us remember, wait, I can get out of this pit. And then I start slowly up the other side. And now that things are looking better and I'm using this new discovery to help me move, I'm starting to get momentum and I'm building up the other side and I'm coming up the other side. I'm getting out of this pit. And you know what? By the time I pass the level where I started, I've got so much positive momentum behind me that I actually fly way past where I started. <laughs> And now I've attained an entirely new level of happiness or understanding or success or contentment or whatever it was because I went through that pit. And so the drama, the way we all know about the drama is, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's exactly the summary of the drama. So I've gone on there for a moment, Jeff, but those are the four storylines. If we can learn to recognize the difference between the four We've got pretty incredible arsenal behind us for when we want to present because we simply ask, before I go into that room, who's going to be at the other side of the table or who's going to be in the audience? What kind of change would I really like to make in them? If it's a change in their facts, eh, I'll give them a report or an explanation. If it's a change in their actions, I'm going to give them a pitch. And if I really want to change what they believe, I'm going to call in a drama and I'm going to really, really make it because that's, that's where reality and truth and passion all comes together. And that's the ultimate story. I, I was curious how you were going to do with describing those storylines without the aid of pictures, this being a podcast, but as I should expect your storytelling skills are as strong as your drawing skills. So great job. Well, thank you. And Jeff, in <laughs> fact, you know, I am, as I'm describing this, I'm moving my hands through the air, drawing out <laughs> those curves and, you know, 
well, we'll talk about this when we get to pictures for a moment, mm. but there's a real profound reason why I mm. do that. Well, yeah, and to that end, what I consider the, the funnest part of all, and that's the picture part of the three simple truths. Uh, uh, but before we jump into that, actually, I'd first like to ask you what the research says, Dan, about our brains and, and visual processing. Well, you know, we are profoundly visual. And, and boy, years ago when I started to work on my first book, The Back of the Napkin, I was the guy who had always drawn to try to make sense of things. And I found that that was a really powerful tool when I would go in to do sales or presentations or consulting or even team meetings. I'd be the guy that'd go up to the whiteboard and and draw little stick figures and circles and arrows. And I knew it was powerful. So I thought, well, why is that? And that's why I dusted off my undergrad biology degree and went back to the latest in vision science and talked to some of the people who've literally written the textbooks that are now used Mm. for teaching visual neurobiology. And the research tells us this, probably close to half of our entire brain, every neuron that we have in there in one way or another is active in processing vision. More of our brain is dedicated to processing vision than any other thing that we do. And compared to most things that we do, orders of magnitude more processing is dedicated to vision. So we could pretty much make the argument that for most people, For most of us, the vast majority, simply by being human, we are essentially walking, talking, visual processing machines. And what's remarkable about that to me is how much time we spend in education teaching people to be verbal, which is incredible and necessary, Mm -hmm. but how little time we spend teaching ourselves or our children or our colleagues how to take advantage of the half of our brain that's focused on the visual. Here's what we know. If I'm up on stage and I'm walking you through my PowerPoint and, you know, uh, I've got a list of bullets up there and I'm talking, most people in the audience are probably going to be able to tolerate me doing that for about three minutes. (laughs) And then the visual mind, because it's got nothing interesting to look at, is going to begin to check out. And you know, let's face it, most of us are not so glamorous looking that anybody wants to look at us for more than three or two or three minutes. And most of our PowerPoint slides in the traditional way we do them with bullet points, there's nothing for the visual mind to really grab onto. So the mind's going to wander. So the way we counter that, and in fact, we can go far beyond countering that, we can actually take advantage of that, is by showing pictures. Pictures give the visual mind something to do If we've collected or created the right pictures, those pictures complement what the verbal mind is hearing, and all of a sudden, we've got our audience locked in, paying attention in a way that they cannot even look away from themselves. That's why we use the pictures. You say, to illustrate any story, we need only six. It's kind of like with the storyline, so there's only four storylines to worry about. When it comes to illustration, there's only six different kinds of illustrations we need to think about. That sounds great, but uh, can that be true? Is that, really, is that really the case? It is really the case, and it is really that simple. And how do I know that? Because, again, if we, if we go back to the basis of visual neurobiology, how does vision work? And Jeff, I, I, I scared you earlier by talking, saying we could talk for seven hours. We won't, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, amazing. it's amazing to think about how vision works. And let me give you the very shorthand version. Vision works. There's a billion different processes going on there at any one time, but we can essentially break them down into six fundamental underlying work streams. Vision works by saying, hey guys, 
we're the vision team. We're all the neurons that are responsible for looking at the world. We're going to assign tasks to each different team. There's going to be six different teams. You guys each are responsible for looking at the world in very specific ways, and then we'll get together at the end and all shake hands and come to agreement on what we think we saw. So those pathways are called the visual pathways, and the names of those pathways are intriguing. One of the pathways is called the what pathway. The what pathway's job is to identify the objects that are in front of us. If I'm looking at a glass of water or if I'm looking at a car or if I'm looking at a tree or if I'm looking at another person, the reason I know that and I know what I'm looking at is because I have a what pathway. Mm. There is another pathway called the where pathway. The where pathway's job is to detect distance. It cannot recognize objects. It's more like looking at a sort of a radar dish or a sonar display. It's almost like a sort of a grayscale image where things that are light are closer to me and things that are dark are further away. And this is a very, very ancient part of our visual system. Uh, a lot of it takes place actually in our reptilian brain. Very primitive. It's just detecting distance. Then there's another pathway that's called the how pathway that starts to stitch these pieces together and say, well, wait a minute. I saw that there were these things. Another pathway counted them. The where pathway looked at their position. And now I'm going to start to put them together and say, these things appear to be moving in the following ways. And I'm going to detect the patterns that are out there. Now, Jeff, stop me before I go too far into this, because what does this tell us? <laughs> Vision works by breaking the world down into six discrete visual pathways. Each one of those pathways is looking for a certain type of visual information. In order for us to draw a picture to describe anything, all we need to do is draw the picture that feeds each visual pathway exactly the information it's looking for. And I'll rattle off the six pictures very quickly. The first picture is what we're gonna call a little portrait, a little stick figure or a little sketch of a thing. The next picture is a chart. That's the part that shows number. The next picture is a map. That's the picture that shows the spatial relationship of the objects we're thinking about. Mm. The next picture is a timeline. It shows the temporal relationship, the time relationship, the sequence of the things that we've been looking at. The fifth picture is the flow chart, which combines everything we've looked at this, to this point and starts to map out the sort of the cause and effect in our idea. And the last picture we're going to call kind of a visual equation. It's sort of the visual moral of the story. Why did we go through all of this? Because, you know, red is better than green or three is better than two or, you know, big is better than small or whatever that final thing is. Those are the six pictures we need to draw or find to communicate anything. I hope that makes sense. Well, it makes perfect sense. But the next question then becomes, what about style? Now, obviously, you put an emphasis on drawing, but you spent some time in the book talking, too, about photos versus graphics versus drawings and, and some of the pros and cons of using each one of those. Sure. So if we take a half step back, a moment ago, I was talking about how much time we spend, and rightfully so, on teaching ourselves and our children to become good verbal communicators. And we've got, we've got so many tools. We've got grammar and vocabulary and spelling and syntax and how to write, all of these tools that we've learned to become really good on the verbal. But we have no equivalent tools on the visual. 
Uh, we just sort of assume that vision works. Uh, we don't have any visual grammar. Nobody teaches us how to draw when we're young in any con concerted way in the same way that people work on our handwriting. I think we're making a big mistake in school by not emphasizing more of the drawing, because mm. here's why. Writing is the mechanism of verbal communication. All right, if we're going to teach people to be verbal, writing, whether they have good handwriting or not, whether they enjoy it or not, that's the tool you have to use. The tool, the mechanism of visual thinking is drawing. And I wish we spent more time getting people to be more comfortable doing it because it's not hard to draw. So the reason I bring this up is many of us will say, I'm not visual because I can't draw. Well, that's a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> that's like saying, I'm not verbal because I can't talk. Well, my gosh, think about it. The first time you talked, how good were you at that? <laughs> not very good. It took a few years of training. Drawing's actually easier mm. than writing. But somewhere along the way, because of our educational system, right around second grade, the moment that kids really start to be accomplished at reading, they take all the pictures away and we're never allowed to use them again. Mm. And it is disastrously bad that that's the way we've set up our educational system. But, you know, that's a different soapbox. I'll get on that one tomorrow. <laughs> so, so here's the sideways answer to your question. I believe we can draw. We just need a little practice. But for those of us who say, I absolutely can't, okay, we'll use photographs. Photographs are extraordinarily evocative, really easy to find now, thanks to thanks to Google Images and other image search you know, databases mm -hmm. and stock photography, you can find photographs of just about anything that you might want to talk about. And those photographs can be very evocative and very useful in your presentation. We want to be really aware of copyright issues. You know, we want to make sure that we're crediting images where they belong. Mm -hmm. That's the downside of using photos is mostly they belong to someone else. So we want to be really careful about that. The second type of imagery we talked about, I give the term graphics. So it's somewhere between a drawing and a photo. Graphics would be things like uh, clip art, perhaps, or more schematic diagrams or charts that are generated out of our software. Mm. And graphics are great, too, because we can make them specifically to emphasize the point that we want to talk about. So graphics are lovely, but in order to make them, they do require... Uh, you know, some competence with using probably some kind of software tool. Um, and not everybody has that. But that's where I love the drawings. You know, the drawings with a little bit of practice are not that hard to make. And here's a remarkable thing, Jeff, that I found. When I'm giving a presentation and I'm drawing as I talk, my drawings are not good. <laughs> they look terrible. It doesn't matter. Because we're not trying to draw what the world looks like out there. Mm. We're trying to simply draw what we see in our own mind's eye so that someone else can see it. And typically that isn't really a whole lot more than a couple of circles and arrows and a triangle and a box and a stick figure or, a, you know, a little really basic drawing of a car over here or something. We can do that. What would you say to someone, Dan, who says, I so rarely see presentations and actually use drawings, or is there any reason to be concerned about, you know, not being taken seriously by my audience or my colleagues if I'm, if I'm using drawings instead of this beautiful stock image photography? Well, that is, that is the million-dollar question, Jeff. I mean, that is the big one. And I will tell you from my own personal experience, I've given more than 500 presentations in the last seven years. And in every single one of them, I've done drawings. And I've I don't remember anybody ever walking out of the room or thinking or not thinking I was not serious afterwards. <laughs> but 
You also have to be judicious. The analogy I often think of would be this. You know, if you're going to go try to interview for a job at, um, you know, Goldman Sachs up in New York, you know, on Wall Street, are you going to wear a suit? Yes, you are. But if you're going to go interview for exactly the same job at Google out here in San Francisco, are you going to wear a suit to that interview? You are not. Something in us tells us, depending on who we're presenting to, there are standards that we need to maintain. On the East Coast, you know, in financial circles, wear a tie. On the West Coast, in tech circles, don't wear a tie. The same thing applies. If I'm going to go in and give a presentation to a very, very senior, traditional, conservative group of people, I probably am not going to do a whole lot of drawing for them. I will probably come in with some more buttoned-up photographs and buttoned-up graphics. But if I'm going to be talking to my colleagues, or if I'm going to be talking to people who I know are already on my side, or more importantly, someone I really want to get on my side, I think the drawing can be a really powerful human way to do that. One technique that you suggest that I really uh, latched onto, and, I, and I've actually done this before, I like to use a presentation software called Prezi. I don't know if you're familiar with Prezi or not. And I'll sometimes uh, leverage this technique with drawings or sometimes with graphics, but it's the idea of presenting to your, your, your audience a nearly complete image and actually finishing it live in front of them, either by hand or with the software you're using. I thought that was fascinating. That is. And in fact, I am familiar with Prezi. And there's a, so, so two things come out of using either Prezi or PowerPoint or Keynote. It, the technology is almost, it's almost irrelevant because all of them do similar types of things. They allow us to put images and combine them with text. Fine. But Prezi's cool, and I've figured out ways to do this in my own tools that I use, primarily PowerPoint, is it keeps the screen moving. And when we were talking about our human um, love of vision, One of the things that we really are keying off of that's keeping our visual mind active is seeing things move. And so what Prezi does is, or at least one of the ways people use it that I've seen, is in between one idea and the other idea, you can actually see the screen move. So instead of just this sort of hard click from image one to image two, Mm -hmm. do you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about? The way it sort of pans across and zooms in or zooms out? Yeah, yeah. Our visual mind loves that because what it's doing is it's feeding us uh, a very, very clear transition from one idea to the next. Um, and it's that movement that is really powerful, and it's the drawing, the live drawing where, where you were discussing where you finish the, the image with the last bit mm. before the audience's eyes. Holy smoke, we're talking, we're talking stage magic at that point. <laughs> Well, the last thing I want to touch on related to the book is is to find out if you have any advice you can share for those who still fear getting up in front of people. You referenced before that you know at one point none of us had a problem with that, like a like a baby telling its mother what it needs. What are some tips for fighting against worry that you share or, or anxiety for someone about to give a presentation? Yeah, well, I've been there as I mentioned earlier, and everybody that I know has been there. And when I compare notes with people who now do a lot of presentations who've gotten past that fear, there are three words: practice, practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's all there is to it. You know, um, let me add a few more words to that. I've come to the realization that good public speaking, good presentations, is kind of like a martial art. It's kind of like kung fu. And what I mean by that is, when someone's really good at it. They make it look effortless. So we in the audience have the misconception that what they're doing is really, really easy. 
So I grew up as a kid watching Kung Fu, right? Hmm. And, you know, you'd see, you'd see him do this amazing flying through the air kick and take down three guys at once and all of that. And you'd say, and then we'd all go out in the street and try and do the same thing. And what do you know? We couldn't. What the really great presenters, and I can name names, people like, uh, well, let me give you one great example. Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. world's second wealthiest man, has gone on the public record, lots of stories, lots of anecdotes, and said when he was young, he was so terrified of getting in front of an audience that he knew it was going to be a liability for him as he decided, you know, in, in the business career that he envisioned mm. for himself. So what did he do? Well, he does what anybody does who's serious about something is you study it and you practice. So he went to Toastmasters and he went to Dale Carnegie and he practiced. And to the, now, you know, he's extraordinarily comfortable in front of an audience. The same thing, not that I, I'd love to compare myself to Warren Buffett, but uh, <laughs> not that I can, but you know, there's a lesson there. Here's what I recommend. If someone asks you to make a presentation, always say yes. The reason is there is nothing that is a greater contributor to our professional success than being mm-hmm. the person who takes the reins and gets up on stage and says something to the other people that makes sense. That is how leaders are made. Mm-hmm. They are the people who have the guts to get up in front and do it. But most of us don't have the guts. We're afraid. So here's the way to avoid that. The moment an opportunity comes, say, yes, I will do it, even if I'm terrified. And then plan. The planning is easy. Remember those three buckets we talked about in the beginning. Hmm. The only three things we need to plan is who do I want to be when I give that presentation? Do I want to be an expert or do I want to be a newbie? Do I want to be arrogant or do I want to be self-effacing? Who do I want to be? Number two, what is the thing that I really want to share? What's the story I want to tell? What's the pitch I want to give? What's the report I want to give? And then the third one is, and who am I going to be giving it to? So just thinking through those three things immediately gets us past our initial level of fear because we're taking action. And the best way to get past fear is by taking intelligent action. So the action we're taking is we're planning. Great. That gets us through creating our presentation. Oops. But now we've still got to deliver that puppy. Now comes the moment of truth, right? We've got to get up on stage. The mic's on, the lights are on, and we've got to talk. Whoa. So let's recognize at that point what's happening. The fear that we feel, it is legitimate and it's there for a good reason. It's our most ancient you know, mind telling us, you're about to do a very, very stressful thing. And so the body prepares itself for stress. What good presenters know is that stress can be a source, if it's in the right amount, a source of good performance. What scared me a long time ago, <laughs> bad presenters think, is, huh, Everybody's going to see how terrified I am. I'm going to get even more terrified. I won't even be able to talk. (laughs) The way we get past that is we practice. And and you can't avoid it. If you try to give a presentation without practice, it will most likely not be very good. If you give a presentation with no practice, I can pretty much guarantee it's going to be really bad Mm. for everybody involved. We don't like to practice, but that's that's the key. So you asked me for one word. There it is. Practice, (laughs) practice, practice. And and when you say practice, that doesn't mean doing things like well. And here I'm going to say this. I mean, you're talking about actually doing it as you would deliver it uh, for real. Yeah, you know, I'm a 
I'm a space geek. I'm a, I'm a child of the Cold War. My, my father grew up in the Air Force, and, you know, we were going to the moon. And, boy, that was, that was, those were the, the days when I was very young and clearly very formative. And I've had a sort of a, a love affair with NASA and space ever since. And I'll tell you, I've learned a lot from, from getting to know some astronauts and, and reading everything I can. And one of the things I found really interesting is, you know, NASA, they take pretty seriously sending people into space. <laughs> and one of the things they learned a long time ago was something they called a plugs out test. And the idea is this, when you're in space and let's make the equivalent to being in space, being the same as being on the stage, mm. you know, you can't come You can't just get off the stage. You can't just come home from space. If something goes wrong, you got to know that you know how to deal with it. So the way they do that in NASA is they set everything up exactly as if they were going to launch the rocket. And then they go through the entire scenario, testing things out. And they do it in a safe environment because they're still on Earth. So if something goes really bad, you know, they can fix it easily. I believe in doing a plugs out test for our presentations. And what I mean by that is we have prepared a really nice presentation. We do not flick through it on our computer screen and say, oh, this is the part where I'll talk about uh, the new product. And this is the part where I'll say blah, blah, blah. And this is the part where I'll talk about our customers. Because you're not going to say that on stage. And what you're doing by taking that shortcut in practice is you're telling your brain you don't have to think at this point. And that's when things are going to go bad on stage because all of a sudden you're going to flick to the next state, to, to the next slide or the next image, and you're going to say, wait a minute, all I practiced was blah, 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 but that's <laughs> not what's up there. What am I going to say? And all of a sudden the sweaty palms come and the ringing of the ears come. So here's what you do instead. You find a room that looks very much like the room where you're going to give that presentation. You set all your technology up as close as you can to exactly what you're going to do when you give your presentation. And then you give the whole presentation mm. without skipping a single word or a single image. If there's somebody in the room to give you feedback, that's awesome. If you do it alone, that's okay too. But you have to go through the whole thing. Because then what's happening is you're getting your mind used to hearing you say it. And you're getting your visual mind used to looking at the images and knowing why they're there and what do they mean. Mm. If you do that practice twice and you only have to do it twice, the first time will be murder. I mean, it's so hard, it's actually worse than the actual presentation. Because <laughs> your mind keeps saying, oh, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Trust the method. It mm. works. And do it a second time. The second time, you'll notice, oh, I didn't need to say that. Or I repeated myself there. And then the third time, you just do it again. But this time, you do it in front of your audience, and it's going to go like, it's gonna go like magic. Mm. Well, uh, I cannot recommend the book highly enough. I read it in an afternoon. It's an easy, quick read. And as I mentioned before, very much a fun read as well. Before we let you go, Dan, you've had the opportunity to impact a lot of people with your work and the books that you've written. So... Uh, at the end of the day, what do you hope your legacy to be? I don't like complexity. Complexity pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> I would like the legacy to be having clarified a few things and having helped other people figure out how to get complexity to become clear enough so that we can take intelligent action instead of just being afraid and flummoxed. Very good. Very good. Uh, can you name for us, Dan, a couple of books that you've read or maybe are currently reading that have had an impact on you and maybe share how or why they impacted you? You mentioned some of the presentation-related books that you appreciate earlier. Any others? 
Oh, yeah. And in fact, I, I try to read a lot. And let's move away from, there are a lot of great presentation books. But mm. I think, you know, the three books that have had the greatest impact on me over these last couple of years. The first one is called Moonwalking with Einstein. It's by a guy named Joshua Four, and it's about how human memory works. It is such a fantastic book. I recommend it to everyone. It's, it's exactly like having a really smart person say, your memory is a powerful tool, and here's how to use it. And it's just fantastic. The second book is related to that. Uh, it's by a guy named Daniel Kahneman, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh. And Daniel Kahneman is a very seasoned uh, psychologist and uh, academic who spent his life studying how does the human brain work. And he wrote this book. Um, it came out a year and a half ago. It was a huge bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow. And it's just incredible. It's like an owner's manual for our own brain. What's actually going on in our brain when we do particular things? And the lessons there for presenters are extraordinary. Such things as the way we frame a question can, can literally determine how our audience will answer it. So if we frame things in a positive way, our audience will tend to be smarter and more open. And if we frame things in a negative way, our audience will tend to actually be a little dumber and a little more closed off. And it has to do, again, with, with just the basic underlying psychology of, of how we as humans work. And then the third book that I just fell in love with, and it's really off the wall in this one, it's called Born to Run by uh, Chris McDougall, I believe is the author's name. It's a book that, that kind of swept the nation two or three years ago. And it's, it was uh, a book that kind of reinvigorated the running craze again. Um, and I love the book because what it's, it's about a couple of things. Primarily, it's about how we can understand our own bodies better and the absolute importance there is to us in exercise and how as humans we evolved um, as runners. And, you know, whether someone's a runner or not, whether someone's in great health or not, the book is utterly inspiring in just learning about how people, how we humans can make our bodies do extraordinary things just by becoming a little bit more familiar with, with how do we work. Awesome books. And they put the three together, I think, about one's for the body, one's for the brain, and one's for what we believe. So they kind of fit right back into that truth pyramid right <laughs> from the beginning. Well, I know the book has just been out for a, for a couple of weeks, so it may be uh, too early yet to ask this question. But uh, what's next for you? What projects are you uh, beginning to embark on that you're excited about? I'm really excited about something I call the Napkin Academy. It is on, it's my online uh, visual thinking academy. It's gone for about two years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jeff, it's literally at www.napkinacademy.com. And I'm really excited because this being year two, we're going through a relaunch of it. This, the site is up now. We've got a uh, couple of thousand people around the world who are um, paid subscribers to the Napkin Academy. There's free versions and then there's a paid version. And I just love it because what it does is it gives me direct access to people around the world who are using on a day-to-day -day basis, the tools that I've created in my books, um, and we're going through training, and it's all video-based. And uh, it's really exciting because it is a direct way for me to be in personal contact with thousands of people around the world who um, believe in, in some of the same tools that I do and are interested in becoming more visual 
and better presenters. And we share it right there on the Napkin Academy. Well, do yourself a favor and pick up Show and Tell, how everybody can make extraordinary presentations and then go out and get the back of the napkin and folding the napkin and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Is there anything else that I'm leaving out? There's four, right? That's the four. Those, okay. those are the four. There'll be another one in a year and a half, but it's secret right now. It's still cooking, but I've got a good idea on that one. So, Well, Dan, it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, as soon as your publicist contacted me, I was like, yes, I'll do this interview. Absolutely. So thank you for, for giving of your time. We so appreciate it. Jeff, my pleasure. Thanks so much. As much as it might be pulling you out of your comfort zone, the more comfortable you can become with sharing your ideas in public, the more successful you're going to be. If you'd like to network with Dan, one of the best ways you can do that, as I mentioned each week, is on Twitter. He's at Dan underscore Rome on Twitter. That's Dan underscore Rome, R-O-A-M. And the Read to Lead podcast, don't forget, makes a great conversation starter. Everything you'd like to know about Dan, about Napkin Academy, his new book, and everything else we talked about today, including resources, books, and links, can be found at the special page created just for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 041 for episode 41. Don't forget our sponsor, Blinkist, and learn how you can read so much more in less time. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist to sign up for your free trial right now. If you haven't yet rated and reviewed the podcast, I'm going to have to ask you not to listen. And to, no, I'm just kidding. I would love it if you could do that. And there are two very simple ways you can. Go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher, leave your rating and review. And if you happen to feel the podcast is five-star worthy, we'll mention your name on an upcoming episode is our way of saying thanks. I want to say thanks to those leaving new iTunes reviews in the past week. A.A. Brock says, brilliant host with an authentic message. I don't know about that, but thank you just the same. And Greg S. Williams says, I can't get enough of this podcast. Thank you so much, Greg. Appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Always and forever, each moment with you is just like a dream to me that somehow came true. And I know tomorrow will still be the same. Cause we've got a life of love that won't ever change. And every day, love me your own special way. Melt all my heart away with a smile. Take time to tell me you really care 
And we'll share tomorrow together. I always love you.